Hey, everybody. This is Jeff Shulman. And before we begin today's episode, I just want to acknowledge two companies who I am so grateful for investing in a more inclusive future. As you may know, one of the things I'm most proud about is partnering with Marty Burris to launch the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, a program that is empowering inclusion-minded professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product management role. And this started as a volunteer effort, and I'm so grateful that Starbucks was our first sponsor and T-Mobile is a platinum sponsor. Both of these companies are investing in this program that is not just broadening access to economic opportunity, but preparing the next generation of product managers from historically marginalized communities who care to build for everyone. So Starbucks and T-Mobile, these are two companies it's a pleasure to work with who are investing not only their money, but their employees are investing their time and pouring it into a program that is building a family and preparing the next generation of product managers. So shout out to T-Mobile, shout out to Starbucks, and now enjoy today's episode. Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Shulman, founding director of the Product Management Center, and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I'm the founding director of the Product Management Center here at the University of Washington. And we are bringing you insights every week here on the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast recorded on LinkedIn. And today, we have two amazing speakers who have built high-performing product teams, and they've learned the power of culture in doing that. And so we are going to talk about how you can build a high-performing product team and how you could uh, avoid some of the, I don't want to say mistakes, but avoid some of the lessons that they had to learn firsthand. So first off, thank you all for being here. And second, let's uh, meet the panelists today. So Leslie, this topic started with you and your experience at, at Best Buy. Please just tell me a little bit about yourself and your journey in product. Thanks, Jeff, for having me on today. I started in product back in box software days in the mid-90s, Well, right after I got my MBA at Foster. I had an internship at a company called VisioCorp, which was a drawing and diagramming software company that was just going public while I graduated from Foster. And I got to work there for four years and really got the benefit of learning the complete product management lifecycle even though it was an 18-month life cycle and it was for a piece of software that would end up on a shelf at CompUSA, it was really awesome from a customer engagement perspective because we had plenty of time to understand our customer problems and to get feedback on the product as we were developing it. I moved on from there to a career as an internet product manager as Box Software obviously became uh, sort of like the 8-track stereo and moved into uh, media, digital media and worked at Real Networks and was there for three years launching the first online video subscription service prior to Hulu, prior to Netflix. There was a, a product called Real One Superpass, and we had a million paying subscribers getting CNN and ABC News and Major League Baseball and other sports. From there, I moved on to, uh, I worked over the course of my career at Apple, uh, where I ran the online store. So I got some experience at a hardware manufacturer and e-commerce. And then from there, moved back into media, worked at worked at T-Mobile. And I launched the first Android phone as a vice president of product development at T-Mobile. So I worked with Google and HTC to bring the T-Mobile G1 to market in the mid-2000s and uh, had uh, a great experience kind of unlocking the mobile market 
from the Android side. And the career has gone on from there. And most recently, uh, I opened the Seattle Technology Development Center for Best Buy in 2015 and uh, just retired from Amazon, where I worked for a little over two years in the digital advertising organization. All right. Thank you, Leslie. Lots of experiences to share here. And we're in this action-packed hour. And Eric, tell me about your journey in product. And then we're going to dive into uh, building high-performing product teams and the power of culture. But yeah, first, let everybody know who you are, Eric. Sure. I've been in and around product my entire career. First as an engineer, I'm a mechanical engineer and product designer by background. And I did that work with Baxter Healthcare when I was uh, just coming out of school. After that, I've been doing all kinds of different things. I went to business school and started getting in on more of the management side of things. And that's when I started doing some product management and then eventually became more of a, of a general manager or a manager of product management and product development teams. I did that. I spent um, a little over 10, oh, just about 10 years at Microsoft. That was after six years of doing consulting work around really dot-com. It was, that was a dot-com boom at the time. So that was doing both product and strategy work. And then Microsoft with the hardware team, doing mice, keyboards, webcams, and headsets for quite a long time. Then I uh, jumped to Amazon and did some work at Amazon, both on retail and then also with a kids group doing what is called now called Amazon Kids, the kids subscription um, software product, which uh, was pretty heavily involved in getting uh, uh, all of that going and then and running that business. And then similar to Leslie, I, rec I recently retired from Amazon as well. But I did spend a couple of really important years, which we'll talk about today, at Smart Technologies, where I was running their, their product hardware group for the company. So that's a little bit about me. Looking forward to doing this. All right. So we've got a, a lot of great experience building uh, really successful products. And now we're talking about building successful product teams. Leslie... I know we could spend all hour talking about this, but I'd love to get uh, just a high-level view, and then we'll see where Eric and I and the audience want to uh, dive deeper into different aspects of it. Tell me a little bit about the first time that you built a product team, and what was your vision as how you thought what you were trying to build, and how did you go about executing uh, to build that high-performing product team? Yeah, so you know, you take a job oftentimes even as a leader, and you're not always in a position to build a team from scratch and to build a team in your own vision. And when I was brought to Best Buy, the CTO who had worked with me at T-Mobile, it was to open the Seattle Technology Development Center. And the vision for the office was to become a center of excellence for technologies that Seattle was rich in, but for which it was difficult to recruit in Minnesota. This included things like cloud, voice, mobile, AI, machine learning, things where there was a deep bench of talent but that talent didn't necessarily need to move to Minnesota in order to uh, uh, find a gainful employment. All of those technologies were going to be key to the digital transformation that Best Buy was going through at the time. And so it was important to rapidly build up the team, ramp up the, the talent on the team, grow the team quickly, and start delivering proof that there would be value from um, these technologies applied into the way that Best Buy did business as a retailer in the physical space. The agreed upon starting point for this was mobile apps. We envisioned that the mobile app commerce was well below what it needed to be. And the goal was really to elevate mobile 
app revenue from at the same time as to look at mobile as a vehicle for omni-channel, for connecting the online and offline worlds. And so we started with building the mobile apps product team, thinking there would be a team for Android and a team for iOS, since people preferred a platform to develop on, and that each team would be tasked with building both the Best Buy app and the Geek Squad app. And so our initial foray was really to build out those teams. Uh, I was the fifth hire, so there were two product folks. One went on to the retail app and one went on to the Geek Squad app. And then we started bringing in product designers and engineers as quickly as we could. At the same time, the people who were hired had to figure out the expectations from the Best Buy teams that we'd be interacting with. And so uh, there was a, a rapid recruiting process that also coincided, shall I say, with a rapid onboarding process for ourselves to understand the remit, the opportunity, and the players in the organization. And so that was really kind of our starting point. I'll stop there because I think, you know, that just sort of sets up a whole lot of other different avenues of conversation around our method of proceeding. Absolutely. And I want to dive deeper first before I get to any questions that Eric has or any comments he wants to share about his experience. But but first, as you're building a, a product team from scratch, like are you starting with the product managers? Are you starting with the engineers? Like who's involved? Like what kind of roles were you hiring for and which ones were you trying to get onto your team and on board first so that they could then bring the others along with them and with you? Well, it's really funny. I see one of the folks in the audience was my recruiting partner at this time. So I'm sure he'll have some comments when we open it up later about this. But we really didn't have an order of entry. We needed talent. We needed it bad. We needed it across the board. And we were looking for people that would come in and be able to hit the ground running, but that would also be intrigued by the challenge of working for an old school retailer and bringing it into the new digital age. And so we didn't have the luxury of saying, well, let's get the product people to tell us what type of engineers or what type of designers they're going to need based on defining a vision for the product. No, we needed them all quickly and we hired them as they showed up and we worked with the people in Minnesota to sort of help us get oriented. And then when we finally had a full agile squad, we were able to actually deliver output. I'm saying that in the most basic and structural way. There really wasn't an opportunity or a luxury of order. And then last question before we get to Eric is, you know, I know Amazon, the product managers uh, can be pretty specific, right? So you're just taking one tiny chunk of a, of a huge product or a huge organization. When you were hiring, did you start with trying to get product managers to take on like, you know, almost a feature or a little button? Or were you starting with product managers who had more broad experience and could take a, a broader view? And did you have a mix of each as you were scrambling and scaling up? Yeah, no, we had to go for generalists more than uh, small. Re yeah, it was a definite generalist opportunity. My apologies. I missed that you were targeting that for me. Yeah, we, this was broad partly because we didn't know what we were building yet. So we weren't, again, it's another area where we didn't have a luxury of job description. So we couldn't match somebody with a specific skill to a specific feature. So everybody was a generalist more or less at that point, except whether they were an iOS developer or an Android developer. All right. Thank you. So now, Eric, tell us about how Leslie's experience compared to yours in terms of setting the vision and executing on building a product team. Uh, super interesting because it's actually, there's some quite a few parallels. I have some questions for her too later, but let me uh, talk a little bit about my experience uh, that I thought I'd share. 
The one I wanted to talk about was with Smart Technologies, uh, who is a global provider of hardware and software solutions to educators. I would imagine most people in the audience probably don't know who they are, but if you are ever in a school, uh, certainly in the U.S., uh, you will find these what are called smart boards, and Smart is the company that originally created those and started that whole industry. They became the Kleenex of the industry. The challenge that I had when I went to SMART was when I walked in, it was increasingly clear that software as a service was the kind of the path to growth, and the company was not set up for that at all. It required scaling of both the hardware and the software teams, and it was just extremely difficult to do it, that scaling, in the headquarter city, which was Calgary, Alberta. So I was brought in to be the vice president of hardware development. And part of my job was to try and figure out how to expand that team. We needed to expand that team with product managers, with hardware development folks, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, firmware people, drivers people, uh, and testers uh, for both hardware and software. And uh, we were, we looked, I basically looked to Seattle. Part of the reason I was hired was I was in Seattle and it's a thriving um, environment for this type of, of, these types of resources. And there just weren't those kinds of talent available in Calgary. So that's what I set out to do. And the execution piece was fairly straightforward. It's, um, you know, we thought big about the problem, uh, the problem statement was, let's try and find a way to scale the engineering team here and potentially even to become the primary engineering team for the company. And then we'll start small, kind of like Leslie did. And so this is very akin. We did not, I did not start with any particular function in mind. It was literally just get a core group together. Let's get a core team together of two to three of each function. And then from there, we'll go and build. And then the objective would be to scale fast after that. And so that's kind of the lead in, I guess, to the things that I did. And so some similar things I'm very interested in from Leslie is how the culture part of it worked with the mothership um, at headquarters in Minneapolis, uh, worked with her team, because I had some similar things that I dealt with with the headquarters in Calgary and trying to build this product team in Seattle. That is the... Million dollar question, really, for anybody who understands um, what you and I went through is how do you understand the existing culture, especially during a digital transformation, while you're building a, a team in another location that's trying to represent the future culture? So there was, it wasn't just, hey, we're in Seattle, we operate like this, and people in Minnesota operate like that, or People at Best Buy operate within this culture, and so we have to operate in this culture. We were in the process of digital transformation, which meant we were always going to make people uncomfortable to a certain degree with trying to do things they hadn't done before or operate in a way they didn't operate today. And so the culture part was really the most critical part of how we ultimately became a successful organization but it was the hardest part in the beginning for us to dial in, setting up the culture in Seattle to be attractive for hiring and retaining employees in the Seattle environment and the, and the market dynamics that are here versus also understanding, relating to, and collaborating with people who were in Minnesota, where there's a 
completely different operational culture and much more consensus driven, perhaps, and a little bit more comfortable with waterfall versus agile. And so there were a number of competing elements that continue to make the culture component of, of our success more meaningful over time. Like we got even smarter about why that was important in the beginning when we were just hiring for talent. We had no idea what it really would mean for us to be able to find the right people that could fit in to that dynamic. And following up on that, what did you do in the onboarding to get people to understand what you wanted what you wanted this to be, what this organization would, would become. Uh, so how did you onboard them into the culture, into the vision of the product, into you know onboarding them to, to see the future that you wanted for them? And that question is for you, Leslie. This is such a, a learning here. I have to answer that question by going back. And by going back, I mean, we didn't do that originally and partly because we didn't know ourselves. I mean, when you're within your first 30 days yourself, you're trying to figure out how to operate. So how do you interview for somebody when you yourself don't know how to do it? So I have to come clean about the fact that what we did in the initial 12 months was a complete failure. And we realized that the answer to the question you're asking was really the essential part of what we had to do, but we weren't really able to do as we were new ourselves. And we were trying to figure out that balance between uh, existing and transformative change. And so for us, initially, we just hired for skill, literally just hired for skill. And, and that talent got in the door that would be aligned at least to the mission of digital transformation. But what ended up happening is we did not interview for cultural fit because we didn't know what that would mean or what that should be at the point. And so after 12 months, they do an annual employee survey like many large corporations do. I got my results for the Seattle office as I was getting off a plane in Minnesota to meet with my boss. The results were in my hand, literally in the car ride to the office. And I almost told the Uber driver to turn around to take me back to the office. They were so horrible. I was embarrassed to show my face. It was like I had had a group of individuals, all who thought they had an idea that was different than the other person of how this should operate, what should be important, how we should manage disagreements and conflict. And it ended up being a, a catastrophic problem. And it is was the biggest learning of my career, which was we needed an answer to the question you asked and we didn't have it. So when we regrouped, we realized before we could even interview for those things that would matter, we had to really come to an agreement as to what they were, what those things uh, meant and why they were important. And then we would be able to interview for that behavior. And so we were fortunate that we were able to hire a number of our early employees who were ex-Amazonians. And we sat down to really come up with our leadership principles. They were a blend of what we thought was valuable to survive with leadership in Minnesota, but at the same time to conduct ourselves with integrity in the Seattle market dynamic of really getting and attracting people who would be comfortable with some of the challenge and conflict we might face during the transformation period. And so we built a set of six tenants. And as a leadership team, we all, the, the surviving leaders, after we let go over 50% over of the team, we had to let go after that experience of it really being so 
so disastrous. We rebuilt the team with the, with the idea that these tenants were going to be the critical touchstones for us to be able to navigate through all the challenges. And then we developed interview questions. And then we decided that if you failed on any of those behavioral questions, that interviewer who focused on them could pull the red chain and the whole candidate, even if they did well everywhere else, would not succeed. They were that critical to performance and to culture that we needed someone to land all of them, all six of them, and to really make sure that they had stories that would lead us to believe that not only they had the talent and skills we could test for, but they had the behavioral and cultural norms that would fit in and take us to where we needed to go. It was a dramatic change because we pivoted with this to a culture that was so desirable that in my last quarter there, we had basically zero attrition. Uh, we had gotten it down from 15% to zero in two years. And it was all because we made a point in the onboarding process that people could also opt out of continuing the interview if they didn't like what we thought was valuable. They didn't have to accept our offer. But if we felt like they really hit all the notes, these would people we would go to the mountain for to get them on board. And we had a great recruiter who was really helpful in making those arguments and how critical it was for the success of the organization for us to be able to attract the talent that we needed to make those changes happen. Wow. Thank you for sharing that misstep and letting us all learn from from your experience. And I'm sure our audience is going to have some follow-up questions. I see some former students of mine in the audience and some longtime listeners. So thanks for showing up. So we'll get to audience questions in about 10 minutes. But first, Eric, I want to hear from you. Uh, You could decide where you want to go with this because there's two directions I'd want to hear from. How you onboarded people to make sure that they were aligned towards your vision and your culture and your way of working or how you learn to interview for behaviors, not just skills. So you choose your own adventure, but I'd love to hear from you uh, based off of what Leslie was saying, what, what your experience was on those dimensions. Yeah, I wish I had the answers too when I had started. Um, I, much like Leslie, there was a lot to learn as we went through this process. But in, as far as onboarding is concerned, um, Jeff, I think the the way we looked at onboarding was we also were more interested first in getting the right skill sets on board. Talented people who were willing to work in what was going to be a remote environment, but willing to make that remote environment, we treated it like a startup. It was one that needed to be pretty self-sufficient on its own. And so part of the vision that I had was that you know, if the long-term vision might even be that the Seattle Product Center was going to be the center of all of the engineering for this company and not Calgary, you know, what would that look like and how do you build towards it? So we did look for people who were coming in uh, interested in that kind of environment, knowing that that kind of environment has a lot of unknowns, despite the fact that our company was well-established, had become the number one brand name, but this location was completely different. So we looked for those kinds of things when we were looking at people to hire and who we would hire. I'm going to go in, uh, you know, not a tangent, but something that's directly related to the onboarding piece, Jeff. And that is that the way that I structured the organization was not as a complete standalone organization. And that made the onboarding piece a little bit more challenging because I had managers 
who were in Calgary who were uh, hiring for these folks to make sure they had the right skill sets. I'll be the first to say, you know, I'm not an electrical engineer. I'm not a firmware person. I'm not a driver's person. I wouldn't have known how to properly hire a high-performing engineer in that field. But I had plenty of people on my team that did, and they were based in Calgary. Now, where we ran into the onboarding piece and the culture piece was, I'll just call it the FUD, you know, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that the team in Calgary had about exactly what the Seattle organization was going to be. Was it going to take over, you know, all the roles that were in Calgary? What was it, you know, how am I, how am I hiring for this? And how do I make sure that I, you know, maintain my team, et cetera. There was a lot of that going on. And so the onboarding piece, while we knew what we were looking for and we were trying to hire it, it was a challenge to try and get the managers who are the functional managers who are hiring those people to really kind of get on board and figure and understand and not be afraid of doing this because it was only going to benefit the organization in the long run. And that just took a lot longer than I think anybody had expected. Because when I came on board, the C-suite, you know, that hired me, they were, you know, chomping at the bit and said, hey, we need to go. We need to go, go, go. That's the path we were on and that we tried to go down. But the, you know, my lesson learned from all of it is there's a lot of patience you have to exercise in this large a change management type of scenario, especially when people's livelihoods are feeling like they're at stake, even though they really weren't. It was very hard to convince people otherwise. All right. Thank you. I got one more question and then we're going to get to audience questions, but I'm just curious for both of your thoughts on the ideal ratio of product managers to other roles on a product team and how you're thinking about that may have evolved over time or, or where you've landed on that. And I'm not asked, it doesn't have to be a specific number unless you've got one, but just curious on kind of that ratio and, and how it, your thinking on it has evolved. We'll start with you, Leslie. Yes. Interesting question. As I mentioned in the beginning, when we set up the team, we thought we were going to have an iOS team and an Android team and that we would have a product manager for both apps on each of those teams. It didn't make sense. We needed a product manager for the Best Buy app who could do iOS and Android. And we needed a product manager for the Geek Squad app who would think about it as iOS and Android. So we actually ended up having two engineering teams for that product owner to work with. That ultimately, I think, became an important ownership structure that worked from a product perspective, get consistency across the platforms. But it isn't necessarily how I would set up the ratio of product to engineering, typically. I think in this particular circumstance, it made sense. In other organizations and for other things that we set up later, like a voice team, when we set up voice, it was a more traditional sort of two pizza team size with a designer, a product person, and somewhere between, you know, six and seven engineers that would work on on that application for Alexa or would work on that application for Google Voice. And so we had a more traditional two pizza team size with the other features. But in the mobile apps, we went a little bit off that pattern and had a single owner for two different engineering teams. All right. So I have a follow-up question and then I want to hear Eric's opinion on this as well. So is, is your decision on what to chunk out to a new, to a product manager based more on the team or on the product? So, you know, you started with like, we've got the app, 
But then within an app, you know, sometimes a product manager will take on one specific aspect of that app. So how do you decide when to start chunking out that product into multiple product managers based off the team and the growth or based off the product and usage or so on? I always, maybe this is just my sect of the product religion that I subscribe to is I, I do my best to give total ownership of a product. I I have not had the misfortune, I would say myself, to have to be a product manager of a feature that gets chunked out. I look for the right senior person if the product is big to be the leader of that product. Maybe they're a principal as opposed to just a product manager or a senior product manager. If it has many moving parts, they should be able to do it. I tend to go with a 360 degree product management view of a product, whether it's an app or a, a capability. I want them to have complete ownership of that customer need, that customer problem, and the set of solutions that they could design to fulfill it. All right. Thank you, Eric. Uh, your thoughts on the ratio of product managers to other members of the team, and then also this 360 ownership, or uh, how do you do it in terms of breaking down responsibilities? So I'll put this very succinctly because uh, fairly similar. I, I view, I, I'll start with the second question, the 360 view, because that is, that's generally the way I think about it is it's much easier and more streamlined to develop products cleanly with a single owner, a single product owner, if you can do it. You know, there's some products I've been fortunate, like the products at Smart, they were contained enough that you could, I could do that at least from a hardware perspective. We also, though, had a software product manager for the interaction between the two because we were having software as a service added on to this. So it would be a hardware product manager and a software product manager working together on it. But I did not have two hardware managers. The same thing happened when I was at Microsoft and doing the, you know, the smaller PC accessories. It was very easy to have a product manager over a single product. Now, there are situations I, where I would say there are types of products that are lightweight enough. I could have a single product manager doing two or maybe three products, in which case then the scale of the ratio that you're talking about will double or triple, you know, depending on the type of product. So typically it's one product, man I think of it as one product manager for a product team. And depending on the nature of the product, you know, for the hardware side, it's smart it was typically one product manager to roughly five or six people. But in some cases, we had really simple ones. There were more turnkey, small changes to existing products where we wanted to do a variant or a derivative of a product. Those wouldn't take as many engineers. And it would, you know, that would be the kind of thing that a product manager can do as a second project or a third project along with a brand new development. All right. So we've got my questions answered and I've got a ton more and I'm happy to throw them their way. But first, I want to hear from the audience. If anybody here has a question for Eric or Leslie, click on the raise your hand. And we already have one here. And uh, if you have a question or if you have a short thing that you wanted to share from your experience, feel free. But we've got one here. And I now, usually Red manages the stage. So for those of you who are avid listeners, my good friend Red and founding advisory board member for the Product Management Center, he brings a whole different flair to it. And so I don't know if I should try to replicate his comedy and his humor and his lightheartedness or just go straight to our person here. Bosa, you are here. We're going to keep your last name anonymous unless you want to share because it is recorded and put out as the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. But you've got both people and product management in your title. So we're grateful to hear from you today. The stage is yours to ask or share as you wish. Thank you so much. Good evening. So I have two questions to ask. 
right? So, I mean, in building um, product teams, we try our best to um, hire the right set of people, right, to do the work. But then again, my question is coming from the angle of um, when you hire, like, I mean, to your best of knowledge, you've, you've hired the right set of people. And then, I mean, these are people and people change. So how do you navigate, like, when people start changing and then you start to see, like, okay, this person I hired, which was looking more like, I mean, the cultural fit then is sort of, like, changing. Like, what's, like, the best way to work around this? Because, obviously, such change will affect the products that we're building and also it also affects the team as a whole. I mean, people change, basically. So, like, how do we navigate around this? And then also my second question is um, the fact that you're, you're building um, about three different products, right? And these three different products are being managed by three different product managers, which I'm okay with. But then again, in sort of like building and interacting, there's this sort of like rivalry amongst like the three products and the three managers. So like in the workplace and, you know, trying to put in the power of culture, how best can one manage such um, situation? So thank you so much for your time. All right. Thanks for the question. Leslie or Eric, do you have follow-up questions before you get into answering it? Leslie, you came off mute. Floor is yours. Or if you have follow-up questions, go ahead. I was going to grab the first question before I forgot it because the second one made me think about a different answer and I was afraid that I might not get the first question answered. So yeah, I wanted to go for it. You know, you made a really interesting point about how people change, you know, from when you hired them and maybe when they're not performing at their best later. But I also would say sometimes people don't change. They just don't understand the environment around them and how it may be changing or how the expectations on the role that they have may have changed. So even if people don't change, circumstances can change and people can end up not being as effective in the role that you hired them for. It's been my experience. And uh, there are a couple of folks who have reported to me, I think in the audience today, and some who, who may have different opinions about this, about my approach, but I've always felt that it's been really important to be inquisitive before accusatory. So when I see someone struggling to maintain what was the expectation either they had for themselves in the role or I had for them in the role, it's often easiest to get to the core of that when you ask them what's going on. And that's the first place I like to start is what, what's the problem? What's the challenge? Why are you not feeling you're operating at your best? Because I'm pretty sure you don't feel as successful as you'd like to be. And it's always interesting for me that the person who hears that has that moment to say, she gets me, she sees me, I can therefore explain what I'm struggling with. And in some cases, what they'll say is, it's just not the job I thought it was, or I'm just not, I'm not enjoying it because I thought the opportunity looked different to me to grow in a certain way. And I'm not having that opportunity. You get, I think, a lot more insight into how to help someone through that challenge if you start with the you know inquiry versus the accusation of effectiveness you know and and challenges with their capacity or performance and so i found more times than not i'm surprised by the gratitude i get back from an underperforming employee when i approach them that way do you see the struggle that you're having in a particular way that could help me understand how to help you better 
And I think that's always where I'm going to start. Now, it doesn't always work because sometimes people just aren't self-aware or they still don't trust management to be open about what they're struggling with. But I think more times than not, it's the right foot forward to have the conversation. If there is a needed follow-up performance conversation, at least you've not come at that person with the guns firing. And that person is more receptive perhaps now to getting the coaching, even if they couldn't be open to what their challenge was. I hope that helps, Bosa. I hope that's that kind of gets at number one question. I, like I said, I was just afraid I was going to lose the answer to the first question because the second one was also a pretty rich and deep question. Yeah, that helps. Thank you so much. Jeff, do you mind if I jump in? I want to add a little bit to, to this first question before we move on to the second part of it. So Bosa, I guess my, my thought on this one is, I guess, similar, but I just wanted to add a few things. The way I kind of think about culture and cultural fit is... It's not so much about each individual. It's not like I'm, you know, thinking about, well, everybody needs to have a similar kind of, they need to be cut from a similar cloth. In fact, it can be more, it couldn't be more untrue. I think you're always looking for diversity and you're always looking for a difference of opinion and different backgrounds and nobody is the same. And even if somebody changes, you know, guaranteed, you know, that, team that you've got or that organization that you're in is still made up of many, many different types of of folks with different backgrounds. And so I think more along the lines of, you know, the culture side of it comes from a commitment or a connection to the team and to the, you know, what the team is doing. I've always felt like when that isn't right for me, I'm not quite the right fit for, you know, that particular team or that particular company or that particular organization. So much like Leslie said, I mean, trying to understand a little bit more about the individual and, you know, what's changing in their own minds is super important. But just because somebody changes a little bit doesn't mean that they wouldn't be equally connected to the team and vision. They just might come at it from a slightly different angle. And I think that's perfectly fine. It's an interesting thing to think about. At the end of the day, people have different strengths. And most likely, while that person's feelings or interpretation or opinions about certain things might change, their strengths probably didn't. So it would be my job or any manager's job to try and get the most out of the strengths of that individual. All right. Did that get to everything you were looking for? Do you have any follow-up questions or points of clarification, Bosa? It's fine. It's fine. Thank you. It answered the question. Thank you, Eric. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on stage. If anybody else wants to have their questions answered, now is your time. Raise your hand and ask to speak or forever hold your peace. We've got two wonderful product leaders who have built high-performing product teams, and you have a chance to learn from them. So my next question is a question about questions. Leslie or Eric, Do you have any questions for each other, wondering how somebody approached a problem that you might have faced or that you heard something that you wanted to know a little bit more about? So do either of you have questions for each other before we hear from our audience here on the next one? Eric, I am curious about your experience in harmonizing the Calgary culture with the culture you built. I was curious what was the biggest gap you had to bridge in the culture between the two organizations. Yeah, I have the same question to you, Leslie. Uh, my my first my uh, my experience with it was was this. I you know I think this is what I underestimated. I underestimated because some of the concept 
of create of me coming in and being hired to come in and do this work to build out the Seattle team, a remote team, was pretty clear. I mean, the, the the people that were there before me knew that this was happening. I very severely underestimated how well they had internalized it and what it meant to them and how they were threatened by the emergence of this and even my coming on board. So to me, the biggest thing was I had to get the the organization to trust me first. And then I had to make sure that they had clarity and understanding around what we were doing, what was happening, and be able to ask questions or air you know, their concerns um, in a forum. I wish I had done a lot more of that early on in the process. It wasn't until you know, many months in did I really figure out how challenging that really was or how challenging that situation was. Because, uh, you know, I was in, I was like, I have my goals. I know what I'm going after. I have a game plan for how to do it. And here we, off we go. And that's really the, the challenge. So it took me a long time to earn that trust. And while I was supposed to be based out of Seattle, in order to do that, I ended up in Calgary probably four days a week for eight months just to try and establish that. Because if I wasn't present, I was out of sight, out of mind, and you know, plenty of rumors could get going, and things can, you know, chatter goes out, you know, goes on, and there was just a lot that had to happen. So I ended up spending a lot of time there, a lot more than I expected. That is so similar to my experience experience about lack of presence having creating distance and in affecting trust. I think what you said is really well well said from my experience as well. I think that you know commuting to Minnesota was not a nice to have, it was a have to have. I had to be able to be present and develop those personal relationships and recognize exactly what you said which was those were essential to building trust. The other thing though that I think is interesting and I was just curious if you had this too, because Best Buy didn't really have a, a strong product culture. Uh, it was mostly a, a, a product as IT. There was a waterfall mentality and less of an agile mindset. And so that became also a little bit of a, a point of friction between the two organizations because we wanted to work rapidly, iterate, learn, fail, you know, re-release, update. And we had a team of people that were anxious to get things out into customers' hands to get that learning. And that was probably a little bit more risk than some of the people had the profile for in Minnesota because of the experience of ownership of those retail stores. So if we were trying to test something in a store, there was a protocol that would take four weeks just to even get an approval. I could drive down the street to the Best Buy in Northgate and get an answer in 15 minutes to my question. But if I had to go through the corporate office to get to somebody at the store, it would take a long time and it would throw off my entire agile sprint. So (laughs) there was a, a, you know, there was, I think the trust part of it was even more of a struggle in light of this change in culture to something that was more iterative, agile and learn as you go, as opposed to get it right and then put it out there in its perfect state. And I think that was also just another drag on the trust factor. Yeah, uh, that, that's even tougher. I mean, I was fortunate; I didn't have the, um, I didn't have that issue 
overhanging my head. There was always the difference of opinion and people bringing different experiences to the table and saying, you know, how can you do it this way? And why do you do it this way? And challenging. But I, that generally just brings, it allows you to iterate and make things better. It wasn't so, it wasn't as, as far as like waterfall and agile, which are pretty philosophically different approaches. Yeah. So that, again, that, I think that was just another drag on the trust level, right? Is where we were trying to change how people work, not just work at a distance. I feel like we could do a whole episode on building trust in remote environments or building trust in a satellite office uh, with the main office. Thank you both for sharing that. I want to make sure we have time for our two audience questions. First, shout out to my student, Yasser, if you could, you were both, Rakesh and Yasser were both at the same time getting the stage. Got to say hello to my student and hear what he wants to ask about or to share. So Yasser, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, Jeff. My question is to Leslie. Thanks a lot, Leslie, Eric. It was really insightful. I want to go back to this story which you shared about like when you came in and you started to build a team. And then you realized, based off of the feedback you got, that what exactly you were going to hire for, like the, the rubric, the overarching traits which you were to look for in the team's culture, that had not been set up yet. And you got to work with that. But once, could you talk a little bit about the challenges when you are trying to come up with that rubric? And once you had that nailed down, was it a walk in the park afterwards? Or there were initially more challenging challenges which came up as part of like when you, you're building up a team, there is norming, and storming, and then it gets to performing, right? So if you could speak a little bit to that, that would be very helpful. My pleasure. So coming up with the six tenants was really the critical, like, retrospective of learning from that first year. So we came up with the tenants by recognizing, looking back in the year in a classic agile retro way, what, what were the behaviors we needed to see to survive? And so, you know, in a start, stop, continue kind of mode, we went down the path and realized we're always going to need customer obsession. We're always going to want to work back from the customer. There was a tendency prior to digital transformation where, you know, executives were the experts of what the customer wanted and then and the executives would dictate what the features would be that they needed to do the business they had to run. And so we wanted to kind of disrupt that with a working backwards culture. And so customer obsession was obviously one of those things that we wanted to, to make a notable change. We also realized grit and resilience was important because it isn't easy to work in a remote office and you need to kind of buckle down and realize things aren't going to come to you. You're going to be out of sight, out of mind. So you need somebody who's going to not take the first no and keep pushing forward. We also needed people who um, were comfortable with ambiguity. We were figuring stuff out and we wanted to be transparent about that. We didn't want everybody to come to work for us thinking we had 100% of the answers 100% of the time. And so as we started to come through this list, there were three more, but I think those are the top three. We then put them on a plastic laminated card to go with people's key cards. And when they onboarded, we actually handed them the tenants. And they were kind of aware of them because they were part of the interview process. But it was something that every time you badged into the building was attached to your badge. So you knew this was what you stood for and who, who you were when you entered the building. And I think that was the real critical 
sense of ownership because actually that was the fourth tenet was we wanted people to feel like they were owners, that they had to solve the problem. And if they didn't have the answer themselves, they were the owner of the solution and they had to go find the answer. And so I think it really became an identity for people and people had that shared identity. And even when they didn't have shared enjoyment of things in their social life and didn't want to go out, you know, doing different things together. When they were in the office, they were very similar and of the same mindset about how work should be performed. And so it didn't force everyone to be fake friends, but it showed a shared value system that made a more cohesive environment and one that was more friendly for people because others in the room had that same set of values and behaviors. I hope that gets yes, sir, to what you were getting at. Absolutely. No, thank you so much. Very helpful. I had one more, but I think I'll, I'll maybe I can say the question with Jeff's permission. And if time allows, we can get, get that after Rakesh's question. How about you stay on stage here? If you have a follow-up question, I want to get to Rakesh first, and then uh, we'll get you to your follow-up question. Uh, Rakesh, what do you have for us? Sure. While hearing uh, Leslie and Eric talk about being in the present, you know, amongst the team, I think so empathizing with the team and understanding the team's culture and then, you know, empowering them, that's that's really imperative without which we cannot succeed. So, you know, I had a question on the similar line, but I think so they provide a good explanation between, um, you know, while exchanging the thoughts. I had a question on social purpose. You now, say, for example, if we want to drive a team culture where social purpose is a mandate or we want to build towards social purpose like you know sustainability or you know there should be some purpose social purpose which we want to build towards in the team culture how do we go about it because you know everyone is very focused on their results or meeting their kpis the revenue models and everything but how do we start inclining the organization towards a culture which is also responsible towards a social cause? Just a, a quick answer to that, Rakesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, my answer to that is you treat your social cause the same as you treat any of your other KPIs. You create a KPI. You create something that you measure and you track. That has been generally the way, I guess, I'll just rephrase something learned very early in my career is you get what you measure. Uh, somebody, a, a wise uh, manager of mine had said that at one point in time, and it stuck with me forever. Uh, You get what you measure. And so if you measure it, you will obtain it. And so that's kind of my short answer to that question. Leslie, go. I second that. And the only like additional add, uh, we made community events an important part of the actual office. We purposely used the office to bring the community in and help, whether it was causes for different groups that we supported as a company, or it was part of Pride Week. We were very clear that we were open and receptive to the community at large, and that our facility was available, whether you were a store manager and you wanted to meet with your staff and then show them all the cool things that are happening behind the scenes in our office. it brought people closer together in support of the overall mission of the of the company. And it gave people in the office a sense of purpose that they were actually servicing a larger community than the people in the building. And so we kind of made a physical manifestation of what you're talking about, Rakesh, by thinking about our responsibility in the office 
location that we had in the community that we were a part of. All right, Rakesh, hopefully that got your question answered. Uh, in the interest of time, I have to move on to Corey because we have five minutes left. I want concluding thoughts as well, but we know, Corey, I could see that you, I'll protect your anonymity, but you're a familiar face to at least some of us up here. So, Corey, what do you want to say, ask, or share? Yeah, I just wanted to share that, uh, you know, when Leslie and I started working together at Best Buy, one of the one of the key things that I think I learned from her is you have to accept what's what the reality is in that moment, like radically accept what's happening. And if things have changed, then you have to adjust. And I think, you know, she talked about the attrition event that they had, and I came in right after that. And, you know, she asked me in the interviews, you know, have you ever, have you ever worked on anything like this before? And fortunately I had, but th- those leadership principles that she came up with, like we carried them all the way into the phone screening conversations. And I would actually tell people, this is, you know, I, I, I still sold you the dream here, but here are some of the things that are going to be detractors from that dream. And if you're not prepared to get your hands dirty in those and be frustrated when it doesn't work the fourth or fifth time you've asked, that's what it is here. That's the reality of, of what's happening here. And I think that made me think about recruiting in a very different way too, because I always want to sell as a recruiter, right? Sell, 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 sell. But selling the, let's call it the darker or shadier side too of what can happen was really helpful at bringing in people who knew it was going to be more than just the op- whatever the optimism bias was they had about changing jobs or finding a new opportunity. So I think that was really important. Radical acceptance of what's happening. What's the reality here? That's it. That's all I wanted to say. And thanks. Corey was an awesome partner in this regard because, in again, in a job market where people were getting dramatic offers from Amazon, Facebook, Google, you name it, and he was selling a company that was an old-school retailer trying to do a digital transformation to get sharp talent, to get people who had vision to make that pivot happen. A lot of that fell on your shoulders, Corey, and I, I really appreciate that you took ownership in the way that we needed you to, of finding people that would fit the rubric, right? That would fit the, the tenants and the assets in that circumstance. Um, so I think knowing we what we screwed up made it much easier when Corey came in, I think, for us to give him the tools to be successful. All right, we are out of time. Thank you, Corey. Yasser, I want to give you like, I know I've, we're going to try to time management. Two minutes left for concluding thoughts. And maybe if there's just a quick question that you have, Yasser, did you have something real short that you wanted to get across or see if there's a, a quick answer to? I can ask uh, real quick. Leslie, when you, you lost due to the conflict between Waterfall and Agile, when you lost control over your sprints, how did you get it back on track? But maybe it's a longer answer, so maybe it can wait. Oh, yeah. I'll be honest. We were really good at working around those kind of blocks after a while, we pretended in some cases that we were running black ops and doing things that we knew weren't going to be allowed. And my boss, the CTO, had uh, always asked for plausible deniability when we broke the rules. But it worked. Ultimately, it worked um, because we made sharp decisions from experience with talented people and the risks that we took. Even when they didn't pay off, they were two-way doors that we could back out of. All right. Thank you, Yasser. Great to see you. Thank you, Leslie, for answering that quickly. And now we have about a minute total. If you want a concluding thought, any bullet points you want to leave the audience with before we sign off here? We'll start with you, Eric. Anything you want to leave the audience with today? Yeah, I'll just say two things. 
One is that you heard some experiences from Leslie and I. They are not the be-all, end-all of experiences you will hear. Uh, hopefully you got something from this. And the, the piece that I would say I learned the most from this particular experience that I discussed is as you got to stick to a vision, and that vision helps create the culture. And that's kind of the place that you build from. And so as you are starting or embarking on new teams or running your own or building your own teams, pay close, close attention to getting that right. And even if it changes, as long as you're clear and communicate those changes, you will keep people on board with you. But it's super important to do that. All right. If I may add to that, it sounds like almost having the same intentionality about what the team does and stands for as you do for what your product does and stands for. Did I summarize that almost? Perfect. Okay. Perfect. Thank you for that point and hope you don't mind me adding to it. Just what that, That's just what I was hearing there. Leslie, what, what do you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, I, I second that. I would add that skills, skills don't necessarily predict success. I think understanding the environment that someone is going to be successful in and then looking for people who can be successful with those skills in that environment is the definition of culture, right? What is that person bringing into the environment besides skills that enriches the overall experience for everyone who they work with? And that to me is the power of culture. If you recognize that the person is not just bringing their skills, but is bringing their attitude, their beliefs, their values, their approach to human interaction into every one of those meetings that they attend, then you recognize if they aren't fit fitting in that cultural rubric, they will never be successful just with skills. All right. We've got a lot of valuable lessons and, and really rich stories. Thank you so much, Leslie and Eric, for joining us today. Thank you, everybody, for hopping up on stage to share your thoughts, your questions. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be here. This is the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast. You could download it on every major podcasting platform. And this is part of the Product Management Center's efforts to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. We want to make sure everybody has access to the knowledge that could help you succeed. If you like what we're doing, I hope you'll consider donating to the Product Management Center. We are self-funded by uh, amazing, generous corporate partners and individuals who who see the value in leveling up product managers and, and building a community of people who are ready to build more inclusive products and to build for everyone. So please consider donating. Please consider volunteering. And please consider joining us next week on how to succeed in product management. Thank you, everybody.